1: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Patricia Marcos, and today I'm speaking with Professor Tita Shiku about her new book, The Experimental Imagination Literary Knowledge and Science in the British Enlightenment, a book which is out by Stanford University Press and was published in 2018. So, The Experimental Imagination is a book that very much invites the reader to reconsider the modern distinction we tend to hold between science and literature and perhaps science and art more broadly, and which ultimately, in my opinion, ends up turning those distinctions on its head. So in that sense, it is a book that will interest anyone who is seeking to historicize and expand the meaning of scientific knowledge by way of recovering its early modern capaciousness. And in a way, by using genre as a lens to unmoor the category science, um, from the very narrow and specialized confines that are permitted by the contemporary modern disciplines. So, um, in other words, it is a very rich book, both in terms of its analytical labor, as well as its methodology and the conceptual frameworks that are ultimately developed um, to advance its key arguments. And on a last note, um, this is also a book that I think will add a great deal to existing bodies of literature discussing topics like objectivity, truth, fact, early modern knowledge categories, among, among many other problems and disciplines. So I have no doubt that uh, this book will become a regular presence in many classrooms and many syllabi. Uh, Tita, welcome and thank you for writing this book.
0: Thank you very much, Patricia. It's, it's a pleasure to be here and to um, speak with you about this. Thank you.
1: Um, So the first question, as it is usual, um, for the channel is about you. Um, And um, we'd like to hear a little bit more about yourself, how you came to this field and to this specific project. And perhaps if you don't mind, maybe you could share some of your personal reflections on the process of moving from your first book to your second project.
0: Okay, yes, thank you. So I am in a, an English literature department, um, as you said. So, disciplinarily, um, my work is really focused on the question of literature. And my first book, um, method—it may not seem kind of topically, but methodologically—is very similar to the work that has continued to animate my thinking, and that is really the relationship between. Um, some kind of context in literature, what that relationship is, in a sense. What is the, the distinctiveness of the literary in relationship to the historical record? And working in the 18th century has always required a deep engagement with historicism, um, you know, whether it's called old historicism or new historicism. In a very powerful way, the texts themselves are so elusive they insist upon their cultural moment, that to begin to understand them, you really need to understand uh, the culture more generally. So my first book, which I loved writing, and it came out of my dissertation, uh, was thinking about the dressing room. And what I discovered is that it's, it's life in lived experience, it's existence in very grand homes, was markedly different from its existence as a literary metaphor. And as I was writing that book, I came to um, develop this uh, kind of early interest in what science might do and mean. And it was thinking through epistemology and Swift's dressing room poems that I first came to think about how we come to know things. And that, of course, mm-hmm. is a, um, you know, it's a grotesque and ridiculous satire about a young man going into his beloved's dressing room when she's not there and figuring out, oh, by the way, she's actually, real- her body is disgusting. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> you know, <kind> of <laughs> it's uh, surprise, surprise. And so um, it's a a, a a satire of experimental knowledge production because right. this is, you know, this young man is astounded and going in and discovering things that anyone in a sense with common sense would already know. So that was the and so the the swift chapter in my dressing room book is really thinking about epistemology. Once I finished that book, I had you know, I had that moment that that one never wants to have or wants to have. I found another text that was a dressing room that a young woman converted to a scientific laboratory. Oh, and wow. yes, and I say didn't want to have, because I, I think if I had found this text much earlier, the dressing room book would have been very different. But that gave me a way to begin to think about what science was doing in, mm. in places that you wouldn't expect. And, um, you know, as a historian of science, you know that it was practiced, you know, not exclusively in the kind of modern day laboratory context, but it was a domestic right. art, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that we know that, but it gets lost. We forget that. Right. And so this particular play called The Basset Table has a young woman, Valeria, who and this she's a subplot of a larger play. But she finds a way to articulate her independence through the practice of science. And by you know, trading her her, her jewels for specimens, her beloved brings her a fly. She tries to convince her, um, her cousin to give her, her cousin's greyhound so she can dissect it. So there are a lot of ways in which this young woman is, um, she imagines herself differently. She imagines herself as an intellectual being and, I found that very uh, illuminating to think about the, you know, the kind of very large change, scientific, you know, emergence of scientific thinking in the 18th century. Mm-hmm. So, so from there, I, I kind of opened up to 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 think on the one hand about um, places that science shows up in 18th century literary texts that might seem surprising, right. but also what kind of intellectual work those moments. Produce. Um, And I have to say that simultaneously, I was, as I began getting into science and literature, I was very influenced by where the conversation was in 18th century studies. And that was really tied to the novel. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes, that empiricism really shaped the novel. And I published a number of articles really thinking about details and empiricism. But part of the writing process and the research process for me was realizing that I was much more concerned with science as a trope than an argument about the rise of the novel. So I ended up cleaving that part of the manuscript. And when I did that, the fullness of what became the experimental imagination really appeared.
1: Yeah that's uh, i think that's really fascinating and i you know you engage very direct when i started reading it Im- immediately i thought okay this would be <laughs> maybe like a meal well paired with uh <laughs> with Barbara Shapiro's work which was one of the first ones i had to read on um in graduate school uh the social history of fact yeah. uh with uh, and Gallison's objectivity but with Leviathan and the air-, air pump and you engage very directly with the idea of the uh, with Leviathan and the air pump and the the arguments they include, but also the argument, some things that they did not develop um, quite as fully and which you as a literature scholar uh, explore much more and perhaps with much more comfort uh, than uh, than Shapen and Schaffer would have. I found very interesting, that very interesting.
0: Thank you for that because I find, you know, their work has really been so influential to me and so many other thinkers, as well as Shapiro and Dustin and Galliston. And what really strikes me coming from a, a career, as I say, in a literature department, is um, with uh, Leviathan and the Airpub, the evocation of literary technologies. But without, I you know, to my mind, a kind of uh, an appreciation for the, the fullness of what they actually accomplish. So virtual witnessing, I think, is a great concept. Um, but it ends up, um, what I want to do is really show that to come up with this idea of virtual witnessing, you have to use the imagination. It's a figuration. You have to use the imagination.
2: So, right.
0: you know, and then to turning that, it's, it is a literary instrument. Mm-hmm. But as we know, instruments require themselves a kind of theoretical thinking. There's the praxis, of course, but also right. the theoretical thinking. And I think that's w- what I uh, hope and um, really want to contribute to the interdisciplinary conversation about what literature and science are doing in relationship to each other at this time.
1: Yeah, I, I thought that was a that was really interesting uh, way of exploring um, topics like metaphor which if, I mean, I read a lot of early 18th century right now, the chapter I'm working on, uh, early 18th century medical books. And for me, it's metaphors of the body and bodies and cosmos and all of that. And it just really invited me to open that space, I think, to think what do these metaphor, what are these metaphors doing beyond just making visible and perhaps intelligible the work of medicine? Yeah. Um I think it's methodologically this work you're doing with the literary, um, with uh, the, the witnessing and literary as a technology can be very, very useful uh, for for people working on early modern um, knowledge categories and dealing with, with this literature that is so full of metaphor. And I thought that was very well captured. So you already mentioned this a little bit, but I... I was very interested in this idea that science is a trope. And I wanted you to, to explore this a little bit more.
0: Yeah. So, and it does, it, it kind of builds on what um, we were just discussing. So, to my mind, the, it is in- incredibly powerful to think about the world being available to us through, for example, a microscope. Or through a poem,
2: right?
0: And mm-hmm. um, that these are ways of seeing, and seeing itself is both a physical and cognitive process. So, if we take as as writers in the seventeenth and eighteenth century did, if we take this idea of science, and I do want to bracket, of course, the word science is anachronistic to the time. Uh, natural philosophy is much more used, but it's I use the word science as a way to help us bridge the um, temporal right. disjunction, right? So, but if we think of science itself, not in the way that it is now, kind of uh, uh, culturally accepted as um, a source of truth and the, just kind of the way things are, and I know I'm doing a broad caricature. Um, and we could talk later about how even that broad caricature is coming under attack by other caricatures about how science is false. But if we, if we really think about the scientific endeavor as an endeavor of, um, of making of figuration,
1: mm-hmm. then
0: we can come to understand the sort of, uh, the, the knowledge claims that scientific practice, um, depends upon. And the knowledge claims that writers who then use, in a sense, this new form of knowledge-making science as an occasion to think about what literary knowledge is doing differently. So for me, that becomes, it's a a way of deepening and ennobling what science actually is uh, in the 17th and 18th century. So it is, it's a a, a mode of figuration which I know sounds very abstract but it is a way of making things known which has metaphorical connotations and mm-hmm. you have to in a sense be able to, to to know differently you have to be able to imagine differently so right yeah and that's one of the things that I really think you know just even to kind of segue into the our contemporary discourse, I think that, you know, in the, the histories of objectivity, a lot of histories of science have been very uncomfortable with the role of the imagination. And you see that right from the beginning, that the mm-hmm. imagination is dangerous. And I think one of the, in a sense, the dangers of ignoring that is that it becomes, um, you know, fact becomes more reliable than fiction. and um, it suggests a kind of neat division between the two right. that, that I think is, it impoverishes really the, how we understand the world around us and makes what we think of today as scientific learning. It leaves it vulnerable to the accusation that it's imaginative and therefore false. So I'm interested yeah. in recapturing the productive epistemological value of what the imagination produces.
1: Yeah, I I when I was reading I I really thought about this problem as well and especially uh, when ITA ITA mostly t- stem students um, in history of of medicine classes and you know we 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 have built this divide and, and it's, uh, it's almost, the disciplines exist almost to enforce it, and yet there are all these efforts going on, uh, be it in medical humanities or in trying to bridge the arts with STEM, that are actually just, I think, discovering what already was. What has always been there was that this imaginative process, this metaphorical process this imagin- this way of thinking and figuration like as you as you use it in metaphors were always there um so I think it's actually something that uh stem the stem fields are discovering a little bit, but I think yeah it it feeds into our contemporary debates very very much um so perhaps we can go a little bit so into, into the book itself, mm-hmm. uh, we are already discussing. But I, I wanted, so you start with this sentence that I really wanted you to discuss because I, I find it um, very, what should I call it, subtly provocative, which is when you your book's animating question how literariness became or came to be distinguished from its epistemological sibling, science, as a source of truth about the natural world. Uh, so this idea of the of an epistemological sibling, I find very evocative and and, and quite powerful, and I, I wanted you to to I wanted to hear you speak a bit more about that.
0: Sure, and the it, the language of um, family ultimately <laughs> is a way uh, you know sibling is a way of mm-hmm. making visible really what disciplines are, that disciplines operate individually, but also collectively as ways of knowing the world and ways of understanding the world. And the ways that the difference between literature and science have really, I think, so often um, been imagined, even though, as I say, we, we know factually, we know historically that they were not distinguished. But looking back at the archive, we already distinguished them. And in distinguishing them, we put them into hierarchy. So what I want to, the -hmm. the language of siblinghood and epistemological sibling, it's really to insist that there is uh, knowledge production in the act of reading and interpreting literature. That Mm -hmm. this is not, uh, literature operates on a number of realms. It it has affect, produces affect in the reader but it also produces insight. So what is that that one knows from reading a literary text that one cannot know from reading an economic text or reading a text about microscopy? And the modern university, the kind of ideal civic institution of the university, uh, to my mind, and it, it's the practical aspect of this is, is not evident, but uh, it isn't evident, but the ideal is really where you have these plural approaches to plural objects that mm. suggest um, where we, you know, what our life is in the world. And in this way, I'm, you know, I'm thinking a little bit about Jonathan Kramnick's new book, Paper Minds, in which he's, mm. he makes this argument about the value of disciplinary thinking, mm-hmm. that it is not... You know, it isn't one at the expense of, of another. And, um, you know, my own institution, the University of Maryland, the president has been quoted many times about talking uh, with this, with a really peculiar metaphor. He's quoted in the Washington Post that the university is, is STEM. And at the top of that stem is the flower of humanities. <laughs> and, um, it, you know, but then asked, would you hi- hire a Victorian poetry professor over an engineering professor? I believe that was the specific question. Mm-hmm. He said, oh, no, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely um, not. So there, uh, that, I am not naive in that the, in the, the modern um, educational system, the ideal is, we are very, very far from the ideal, but conceptually and theoretically and historically, I think it's extremely important to think about literary knowledge, which is why I use the term literary knowledge rather than literature or mm-hmm. literariness. And that's one of the, the key words that I use to frame. So it's literary knowledge and science. And in a sense, that word knowledge is really in there for right. us today, mm-hmm. right? That, um, you know, we're not just sitting around talking about, um, what this poem made me think about, <laughs> that there right. is a, I mean, which is wonderful in, in, in its own way, but there, are, there is uh, rigor and praxis and practice and uh, strong good readings. And there are bad readings. Um, as I tell my students all the time, we all have bad readings. We just want to make sure we learn the difference between good and bad readings. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's, that's very, that's very interesting. Um, So maybe we can go into chapter one. um, Mm -hmm. And we've already touched on this a little bit. uh, But I wanted you to explore more the idea of the of the modest witness. Yeah. Um, And you have also the you, you make you state at a certain point that scientific knowledge requires literary knowledge, but suppresses it simultaneously. So I wanted to consider these two, two ideas in dialogue.
0: Um, the Modest Witness I have found to be intellectually very exciting. Uh, the, the concept from Leviathan and Air Pump, I think, opens up um, what this early material, you know, with boil and hook, can really do. And um, it is fascinating to track, to me, how. Uh, and in the book, I talk about Boyle and Hook really construct, they manufacture what this modest witness is. And mm-hmm. it is, you know, in, in Boyle's instance, the modest witness has no physical presence, which is a fascinating uh, description of what an experiment is. The experiment is all about the instrument. Of course, the instrument has to be, you know, doesn't work on its own, it doesn't have its own, um, animation. So the, the modest witness physically really gets written out. And then with hook, he uses, uh, metonymy. It's hand and eye. So that's all you get from the modest witness. So on the one hand, um, the category of modest witness, which I see really, you know, absolutely crucial to notions of scientific objectivity and this idea of neutrality, it requires that the practitioner be invisible.
1: Right. But mm-hmm.
0: it also requires that the pract- practitioner be there. So it has to have two, you know, those those things have to happen at the right. same time. And driving, you know, kind of the wedge that I want to um, call into this is uh, you know, and Donna Haraway made this point long before I did, that mm-hmm. this notion of the un, uh, kind of unperceived and um, self-effacing observer is absolutely gendered, absolutely ranked, right. and absolutely mm-hmm. classed. So it's a world in which the only individual who can be beyond bias is the individual who has everything. And that is really at odds, I think, with contemporary notions of what um, objectivity can and should be. So, ob- you know, this idea of objectivity as really being a, um, a kind of benefit or feature of privilege is something that I, my analysis of The Modest Witness, I hope, um, really... Reveals, and that's why I, I use that language then of the immodest witness. So, what does the immodest witness tell us about the modest witness? So that's the way, that's the scientific practitioner who can only see him or herself in um, experimental learning, who can, who is not beyond subjective bias, um, and this can be both for for um, uh, productive ends, like in the case of the Bassett table and the young woman. Or it's completely delusional and self-interested and um, destructive, as in the case of um, Shadow of the Virtuoso. So it's that doubleness of both requiring but then suppressing the role of this kind of privileged individual that I find um, the you know was necessary and quote unquote necessary for early scientific defenses but has instituted a legacy that raises a bunch of other problems.
1: And, and particularly raises these gendered and class-based issues um, that, that you bring out. And um, maybe we can, t- can then, as you've already alluded to the immodest witness, talk about the antagonist of the modest, um, which is these two main figures that you explore throughout the, the second chapter. Uh, the game crack and the croquette
0: yes and
1: and this, they are these embodiment embodiments of everything that objectivity isn't
0: right and they they really are, and kind of hilariously so in, in lots of <laughs> ways I mean we meet Jim crack, he's learning how to swim by uh you know watching a frog and imitating a frog's motion motion while he's on a table, so you know it's, <laughs> um you know he collects jars of air he you know um, kind of direct parodies of the kind of work that was available in the philosophical transactions. So a a lot of kind of attention to these ridiculous scientists, these immodest witnesses have kind of fallen into the assessment of, Oh, uh, it's not that science was really ridiculed. It's that these were bad scientists and I wanted right. to ta- mm-hmm. I really wanted to take the immodest witnesses on their own terms, which is right. to say, mm-hmm. I wanted to think about beyond the kind of uh, uh, ridiculousness. What is this satiric work doing? And this is one of the ways in which mm-hmm. my training as a literary scholar and the work that I did in my first book, half of which was devoted to satire,
2: mm-hmm. really
0: um, came to help me. Unpack and understand that, um, particularly by these being satires, there's a, a level of, there's an edge of critique that is, is going after the scientific project altogether. In terms of contemporary science studies, I was also very intrigued by um, Natasha uh, Meyer's work on Embodiment in the the laboratory, in the contemporary laboratory, and she's talking right. about mm-hmm. protein modeling and how the practitioners and the scientists themselves really use their bodies to learn and to imagine protein modeling. So, taking that and that's a book that uh, came out with Duke a couple years ago, but taking that as a way to think about the benefit of subjectivity over objectivity allowed me then to revisit these character types who show up all over the 18th century corpus. So I selected just a few, but gym cracks are every, you know, there's a long, long afterlife. And coquettes, there's a long, long afterlife. So the gym crack, uh, I was most interested in how that figure you know, and in the virtuoso, he's a rich man who ends up being humiliated um, sexually and financially, um, but um, and, and never really kind of learns his lessons. But then that same term gets applied to uh, two different women, and how that critique is much more savage. So a character, Lady Science, in James Miller's play called *Oxford Humors*. She's a powerful widow. I, her, her, her dialogue is very, very funny. She speaks everything through scientific metaphor and all kind of, <laughs> all kind of jumbled, like, you know, there's <laughs> nothing there. Um, and she, you know, is obstructive in all the ways that guardians tend to be in dramas. She controls the purse string. She's going to decide who can court her daughter. By the end, she's absolutely humiliated and has to renounce everything, including Mm -hmm. um, her access to science. So one of the differences between Shadwell's treatment of his Jim Crack and Miller's treatment of his with Lady Science is that with the virtuoso, the science is kind of ridiculous, but it's mostly because it's done by this particular Man in right. <laughs> who's who's deluded and you know and ridiculous. In the humours of Oxford, science is of the problem. Science is legitimate. The problem is a woman doing. And mm-hmm. so that I found a very sobering contrast. And that gets to, you know, you um you alluded a little while ago about the feminist commitments of this book. And by attending to the ways in which gender is manufactured and policed and regulated through the practice of science, I not only open up our archive, but come to show how science, as a metaphor, facilitates, the you know, in some ways, some very conservative ideas about gender emerging mm-hmm particularly by humiliating a widow. You know, a widow is one of the most powerful sorts of women to be because she has, you know, I always tell my students, you know, you're just waiting for your husband to die and then you get all the money and you don't have to answer to anyone. It's sort of the best (laughs) thing, right? Um, And in this particular, in Miller's play, her power is completely taken away. And I can't underscore enough the kind of humiliation. So it's it's a total humiliation, um, mm-hmm. in a way that it is it is you know. So science is fine, but it's who does it and who gets regulated. So my my feminist commitment really ex, you know extends to mm-hmm. gender and and class, and there's more work that needs to be done on race and empire as well.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: Yeah, and um, and I I was very struck by this uh, statement you make at the end that ultimately the Jim crack and the coquette become the avatars of enlightenment. And and I wanted you to hear. I wanted to hear a bit more about that as well.
0: Yeah, so it's the and I, the coquette in a sense is a more radical um, case to be made. Um, because, as I, you know, the, as I said, the coquette shows up is a ubiquitous, quote-unquote, problem in 17th and 18th century literature. In no small part, because a coquette is, is so she's an unmarried woman, so she doesn't have access to her mm-hmm. money, but a coquette refuses to accede to the pressures of the marriage market. The coquette mm-hmm. holds on to that moment, that one moment when a young woman has choice. And a coquette is often presented as an epistemological problem. How do you know what she wants? Because you can't tell. You can't read her. (laughs) Right. And so there are lots of poems and plays and novels where, um, you know, her inscrutability um, raises questions and concerns about interpretation and, and, Dissection, quite literally, and so then the periodicals, the Spectator and the Female Spectator, uh, really um, gravitate towards thinking through what a coquette can and cannot be. And so, on the one hand, a coquette is a um, denigrated category, um, you know, in the hands of Addison and Steele. Yes, you can't read her, but we all know. It's like the dressing room poem all over again. Mm-hmm. If we dissect her heart, we can see that um, you know, she was pining for the guy all along, and she just was um, kind of selfishly forestalling the, the, merit, the kind of contours and movement of the marriage market just for her own self-indulgence. Um, and that's a very conservative view. But the, the radical view that I promote in the book is that the coquette and the the, the Jim Crack the character uh, Valeria in the Bassett table, and so it's hey, Eliza Haywood's coquette. The two of them suggest a model of subjecthood that we can trace to the protein modeling that Mm -hmm. Myers discusses in the Contemporary Laboratory. And so, being present and being a self in the process of producing knowledge is in those ways superior to the manufactured idea of objectivity, which in the hands of, you know, in in the satires, is not objective and just leads to, um, stupidity and and inconsequence. So I'm looking, I'm, you know, as a long term Mm -hmm. feminist scholar of the enlightenment, I'm very interested in the, uh, the moments that the larger history tend to write out that we, we see these moments of, um, kind of progressive possibility that may or may Mm -hmm. not get picked up. But I think it's very important to think about um, enlightenment thinking and knowledge structures not as uniform, but as holding open certain kinds of more radical spaces. And I think that's also why I, I, I stand behind a much wider archive. You find these right. moments mm-hmm. by, by looking beyond the kind of authorized texts. So that's that's where my, my training as a literary scholar really comes in, that I can find these sorts of scientific moments way outside the philosophical transactions.
1: Right. And I, I think there's something in this idea of avatar of enlightenment, and you unpacked it, I think, very beautifully right now, but there's something about being a subject and about refusing, especially when you are gendered or racialized, refusing to follow the prescribed social roles. And so if you have a woman who is not marrying, that is actually very subversive to the social political order.
0: It is. It's very. And that's, you know, and that leads to, within the the status quo, that leads to denigration and satire and ridicule, trying to take away her power, trying to humiliate Mm -hmm. And so that's another kind of reason I want to hold these moments up. I want to hold them. Yes, women could not own property in the 18th century. The 18th century, um, you know, British wealth was born on the back of the trafficking of Africans, enslaved into the Mm -hmm. world. Absolutely all of this. Within this, this context, those moments of resistance and those moments of subversion, I think can give us very powerful histories, looking forward and looking, um, understanding social change, political change today, and um, I the 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 value of, uh, and I'm using that phrase of holding up, of mm-hmm. not going to the the kind of later 18th, not not letting the later 18th century story of what comes to be really Mm -hmm. enforce how we understand what's happening in the 1740s is a key part of understanding that um, not only did these categories emerge fitfully, but in conflict with each other and that there are real places and moments of intellectual aesthetic and political resistance that are, that were available and, um, and how to, you know, what more can we do with those moments?
1: Right. So perhaps let's move into chapter three mm-hmm. and from modesty to seduction.
0: Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> I like the, 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 the sequence of chapters is actually a narrative unto itself. But um, I actually think this chapter would be very well paired with, um, with Kuhn and thinking about paradigms. Mm. And in particular, because you challenge this idea of rationality. Uh, and in fact, you state that truth in natural philosophy was a seductive affair. And so I'd like to hear more about that. Um, and what are the essential components of seduction that go into these, uh, be it in terms of power relations, um, desire, sexual, or desire for knowledge mm-hmm. or effect?
0: Okay. Um, uh, well, I love in, in modesty to seduction, right? You, right. Understand, you understand the <laughs> book. You understand the book. <laughs> yeah. So this, this chapter emerged from, you know, yet more of those kind of eureka moments. And it came from reading a Haywood novel, uh, Love and Excess, where this idealized um, idealized heroine,
2: who is
0: very interesting because she is uh, positively rendered throughout, and she has sexual desire, which is unusual by the time you get to the mid-century. So this is earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, So... uh, one of the ways that her quality is imagined is through her reading material, which is Fontenelle. And it precipitates a moment of seduction within the novel. So I was, uh, that's what really got me into thinking about, uh, you know, what, what on earth is science doing, uh, you know, Cartesian science doing in a seduction novel? And that, then got me to really to think about how seduction itself is a paradigm of pedagogy, and that it is a way of acquiring something. In uh, in this case, knowledge. So with the Fontenelle um, and the Algarati, they both play so exquisitely on the balance or the interrelationship, the in intimacy between sexual seduction and knowledge seduction, that it seemed to me that the, there's much more going on than just a kind of incidental, uh, uh, you know, offhand use of a seduction plot. So it in both of them, and they're, they're interesting texts too, because the way that they're consumed in Britain is... I mean, in in their originals, of course, but also through translation by two of the most formidable women thinking and writing, and that is Aphra and Elizabeth Carter. So this idea that one has finally to assent to to believe any, you know, the kind of scientific thinking that's promoted as Cartesian or Newtonian Mm -hmm. Um, it's a very powerful way of understanding, as you say, or recalibrating really what rationality is. Um, You know, and we see this today. I mean, there are articles all the time. Why aren't people convinced by facts,
1: right? Right, right.
0: (laughs) Um, You know, if only they knew. (laughs) Right. Well, well, they do know, but they, you know. Um, And so I think... Sort of the
1: idea that education in and of itself... Will re- solve every problem exactly.
0: Yeah, um, and if you you know, let's just get the right information out there, and right, and people exactly. will agree. Mm-hmm. So I think what these early writers are really attuned to is the um, inadequacy of that rationalist argument, and so the fact that both of them make this analogy between mathematicians and lovers is very purposeful. And it is also a way of opening up the subjecthood of who can practice and who can engage in scientific thinking well beyond the mm-hmm. modest witness that Boyle and Herb right. imagined and mm-hmm. their contemporaries. Um, you know, mathematicians are just like lovers, they, t- <laughs> they take you so far, and then you just, you know, and then you just jump. So it's you know, and both Fontenelle and Algarotti, I think, also um, to varying degrees, make that seductive process not only one of uh, you know a a male desiring individual over a female, Mm -hmm. um, but that the scientists that the male tutors in both of these dialogues become seduced by the women, their their training, Mm -hmm. as well as the idea of science altogether. So the pairing and the dialogue, and the dialogue itself is a a genre that um, destabilizes. Um, The the pairing is of an aristocratic woman with a male tutor who's who's below her in rank. And that distinction also um, helps unsettle our kind of tired understanding of gender hierarchy and also mm-hmm. class hierarchy it's you know it's a different world in the 18th century it's a very different world um but i think that that becomes very purposeful
1: right and um it's it's so interesting and especially in sort of maybe actually moving to chapter four just i i really appreciated how you linked this sort of this subjective Dimension of seduction, and then you expanded that scale to a much broader political uh, scale of of seduction, and you call it the political science. Yeah. Um, so here you read Cavendish and Sprat and Swift, and through these readings, you demonstrate that the epistemological work of natural philosophy could not be separated from the political institutions that actually allowed it to flourish, and. Um, you put it actually very succinctly that ways of knowing are bound up with ways of governing, uh, which (laughs) at least to my work is as as also a very central insight. So I wanted to hear more about this of seduction on this collective level.
0: Yeah. Thank you. And part of that, you know, my, my work in this is absolutely indebted to Latour's uh, reading Mm -hmm. of Chapin and Schaefer and, um, you know, and his, uh, His playing out what and Shaper's reading of um, Boyle and Hobbes really obscures, that um, political is always scientific and science is always uh, political. The critiques of Latour are well-established and um, uh, I think important. Sandra Harding, in particular, Mm -hmm. did a very efficient job of um, noting, you know, in the we have never been modern, you know, Who's we?
1: (laughs) (laughs) The eternal question. (laughs) Who
0: is we? Um, Is we that nice, you know, modest witness? So, um, for me, what this uh, uh, conversation and science studies opened up uh, key ways of understanding really what Spratt in his history, very early history of the Royal Society, is trying Mm -hmm. to accomplish. And really to begin to deal with the, in Cavendish, uh, from a modern point of view, the very unappealing, unsettling politics of her fictional scientific imagination. And also to take very seriously, the genocidal effects of science in Gulliver's Travels. So there is, it, it, not only am I interested in the kind of scaling, as you say, kind of scaling up to thinking about what kinds of political, political communities are possible, but also to say that there's an ethics that runs through mm-hmm. the, the science and political always. So Mm -hmm, for someone like Spratt, he's writing in the white light of having just been through a civil war. And Mm -hmm. to read him generously and give him the benefit of the doubt, he sees the Royal Society's um, promotion of experimental and natural philosophy as a key mechanism of civil society. It allows people Mm -hmm. to disagree without killing each other. And if you said, st- you know, it's, again, he wrote it very early, and it was clearly p- propaganda um, to, pr- to promote this very fledgling society. Mm-hmm. But there's something very um, uh, idealistic and very hopeful about that, of how do we shape civil discourse. And right. um, and in a sense, I think Spratt hasn't been, that, that gravitas, that very serious element of his work, I don't think has really um, gotten mm-hmm. enough attention and uh, a kind of valuation for that in and of itself. Um, he's easy to critique in a certain mm-hmm. way. Um, but this aspect, I think, is a, um, it speaks to the, what, quote unquote, the Enlightenment can do, the kind of possibility that, that is, is still there, it gets perverted at every turn, and, and rarely becomes realized, but there is that kind of germ of possibility. And then someone like Cavendish, she, she wants, you know, absolutism is the way to mm-hmm.
1: go. <laughs> right.
0: You know, and I find teaching the blazing world very fascinating, Mm -hmm. For all sorts of reasons, the students immediately recognize the kind of the essentialized scientific characters, but they're today in, you know, today's U.S. context, they are very uncomfortable with her absolutism. And I think, you know, Mm -hmm. rightfully so. And it is, um, they cannot put together and understand that on the one hand, she wants a woman leading.
1: But right. simultaneous, mm-hmm. so it
0: seems to them, you know, they have a language of feminism. <laughs> so it seems
1: progressive on the one exactly, hand. Exactly,
0: very progressive. And yet, um, this very traditional, almost um, uh, authoritarian model of politics.
2: Right. And so
0: that also gets at gender and rank and gender and class. Um, that, you know, so many of the most, quote unquote, progressive radical thinkers in the late 17th century we're, in fact, royalists. Um,
1: Absolutely yeah, right. exactly.
0: And you say that to <laughs> Hence
1: the need for intersectionality. <laughs> exactly, exactly.
0: And, you know, you talk that to, you know, tell that to a junior at the University of Maryland, and, <laughs> and she or he who's just come from some protest, like, you've got to be, you know, you're, you're kidding. Um, and then the, the last thing I'll say is that I uh, wanted a way to talk about Gulliver's Travels that really mm. brought something to the table. You know, in the study of literature and science in the 18th century, Gulliver Travels is the, you know, it's the Ur text, the go-to text. It's the, the place where we can see that Swift himself is so skeptical about science and transcribes, um, you know, extracts from philosophical transactions. Um, and that is another place that, that was an occasion for me to really take my, uh, my, deep engagement with satire and ask really what are the implications here and what is this beyond you know laughing at scientists who want to turn you know excrement back into food and that is really Mm -hmm. um, and really what is the relationship between this entire kind of world that's designed to make fun of scientific thinking and then the absolutely utterly dystopian world of the talking horses, the widows, and their and their desire to murder the Yahoos, mm-hmm. right? I mean they just this hyper rationalistic mm-hmm. horse world quote unquote reasonably debates genocide and you know how do we get from one one to the next right. and mm-hmm. so I think Swift offers a very very Key lesson that um, you know, instrumental thinking, which he sees mm-hmm. as coming out of scientific thinking without ethics, is immoral. It's fundamentally
1: mm-hmm. immoral. Yeah. Right. And I just wanted to emphasize for listeners that in this chapter, you also, in addition to, to describing this imp- these debates, these very important debates about knowledge and the political order, you you also, you emphasize very much the role of the imagination, not only in terms of the practice of natural philosophy, but as... Um, a factor that enables the formation of like-minded communities and that allows the formation of new knowledge. So I wanted to to take this insight and move to the last chapter, which is on poetry and the role of aesthetics. And my question here is quite simple. Um, I mostly would like to hear you speak more about how does aesthetics mediate the promise of natural philosophy and what sort of epistemologies does aesthetics entail? And how do these epistemologies feed into the title of the book, into the experimental imagination? Thanks.
0: Um, and it does, I mean, the, the overall arc of the book is to kind of get to this um, final chapter. Um, in the writing of it, I had it in the middle of the manuscript at one point. Um, and I realized that this to tell the story, it really needed to come at the end. So um, the, the story ultimately is that, the, that literary knowledge uses the occasion of science to think through its own protocols as a form of epistemology. Simultaneously, aesthetics, which is the study of art, emerges, begins to emerge. It's another one of those siblings to emerge in the 18th century and Mm -hmm. it relies upon a similar set of um, uh, imagined protocols about observation, perception, and truth. Um, Similar protocols Mm -hmm. to scientific thinking. So looking at the uh, aesthetic writing, for example, of Shaftesbury, you can see that this idea of the distance observer, the observer who does not want to own. So that's often a sign of um, neutrality. Although, of course, Mm -hmm. the distance observer who does not want to own already owns. Doesn't want to own because he already owns. So (laughs) that's a whole other thing. But um, that is the category of aesthetics itself um, um, draws and elaborates uh, this idea of the, the kind modest witness, and the minute particular, the kind of thing. But to the end of producing aesthetic categories, so ideas about art and what art tells Mm -hmm. us about the world. So if we go back to my earlier observations about what disciplinarity fundamentally does, is that these are ways of knowing the world around us and mm-hmm, um, right. and they all have different objects, and they all have different modes. So aesthetics is interested in um, the production of art. So for me, right. the term mediation becomes very important in the final chapter, that the poems I discuss, so by two, one extremely famous poet, uh, Alexander Pope, one a little bit less so, James Thompson, and then a bunch of poems that are mainly anonymous. So that's running the gamut of poems published in periodicals to poems that are still taught today in any British literature survey. That these become occasions for what I call aesthetic mediations of science. So what does it look like when the occasion of science is turned into a poem so mm-hmm. with particularly with um James Thompson's poem The Seasons where he has a wonderful disturbing moment where a viewer the viewer in the novel and excuse me it's funny I called it the novel it's so descriptive it seems like a novel um, in the poem looks through a microscope, fears falling in, and starts hearing noise, is overwhelmed by noise. And this idea that there is no boundary between who you are and what you see is not unique to Thompson's poetry. There are concerns about, you know, in the, the development of microscopy that, um, you know what you're somehow what you're looking at is going to look back at you. Um, there are wonderful moments of uh, early scientists using a fly's eye. To one in particular, Leon Hook using a fly's eye mm-hmm. to look at a church steeple. So mm-hmm. it's not a it's not a microscope, but it's a thing that's only available because you have a microscope and you're looking through right, someone else's right. mm-hmm. So it's you know many um, layers of mediation. And what. I wanted to really, in a sense, hold up is how, in Thompson, the lo- the image and logic of the prism allows for a way of seeing the world that is beyond its technological possibility. So prism breaks down, of course, you know what light is, but in Thompson's imaginings of the Newtonian prism, it becomes a way of perceiving difference that is not visible to the naked or even to the optically aided eye. And so that's where aesthetics really can do and produce insights that um, scientific thinking alone cannot.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. I thought it was, it was very interesting. And, and, and actually going back to poetry, a lot of my texts start with poems, uh, especially early 18th century texts, really? um, and made me look at those poems <laughs> in a whole different light just to think about the, the possibilities contained therein. Um, so Tita, I think we've taken quite a few of your time now, quite a bit of your time, but I'd like to, to know if there's anything we didn't touch on that you'd like to discuss or what else are you working on at the moment?
0: Oh, thank you. I mean, as someone who, uh, you know, you work for years on something, and so the, the chance to talk talk about it is such a delight. So thank you for um, <laughs> your wonderful questions and for um, spurring such a really uh, generative conversation. Um, the, I, one quick thing and then a larger thing. So the, you know, uh, I'm not surprised that you say, you know, a lot of the texts that you look at begin with poetry. The, you know, Henry Baker, a you know, fellow of the Royal Society, he, you, know, mm-hmm. you know, published a lot of scientific texts. He also published a lot of poetry. So even right. in the, the textual productions of these players, there wasn't the disciplinary distinction. You know, my colleagues in biology are not writing and publishing. I mean, maybe.
1: They don't write dialogues. Yeah. <laughs> they're not
0: writing dialogues. Not writing plays. Not, you know, and I'm not writing a. You know, uh, it's a whole other, whole other thing. So that
1: that would. I have to say, some of my favorite texts are dialogues, and they're extremely amusing and funny. They are really. I
0: know. Yes, exactly. Because it really puts you there, very much in the moment. Um, so I would say that the you know, writing the experimental imagination and seeing it out in the world was both a both concluded a lot of thinking that I've been doing uh, for about a decade but also instigated new thinking um, and so right now I'm working on a new project that takes up wonder as a, um, a way of really understanding even more um, in, in a different register uh, the relationship mm-hmm. between literature and science so it's one it, of the questions i'm thinking about is um and it links with today that you know how is it that knowing is often described as a feeling what Mm -hmm. you know i just know Mm -hmm. and the role of wonder as a feeling but also as a way of knowing itself so i'm in the early stages yet but it's that part has been really um Working on the wonder is is uh, very productive, and one of the other things that um, bringing this work out into the world has given me the chance to do is, um, for three years, I'll be doing a the the year's work essay on science and medical studies um, for the the mm-hmm. journal Year's Work in Critical and Culturals. Theory, I think is what it's called. My apologies. Mm-hmm. But that is, and so the the fall, in the fall, the official version will come out. But it has given me an opportunity to read very widely in science studies and to think about um, these kind of larger questions about uh, concerning uh, decolonization, embodiment, mm-hmm. what the archive is, what and who the scientist is, um... More more broadly, so that's what's um, that's what's that's what uh, the experimental imagination has made possible for me in the the short and near term. Um, and after that, we'll see. I'll I'll probably finish this next book and then find another text which would have changed how I wrote it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And it starts all over again. (laughs) I do have
0: to say that an an old friend and mentor of mine, uh, Randy Trumbach, Professor Randolph Trumbach, um, he's at the CUNY Graduate School. I was a, you know, bright eyed graduate student and and Mm -hmm. wrote him a letter, uh, asking, you know, saying this is what I was working on. And um, I was living in the city and could I come by his office hours? And mm. we went to lunch and finished, you know, four hours later. Um, and oh, wow. during that time, he said to me, you know, he listened to my dis- dissertation. And he said, you have ideas for a career. <laughs> 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 he said, that's what, you know, we just, that's, you know, it's as though you have one set of ideas that keep finding a new home. So I always think of that moment very fond- fondly as I, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a very generous response to a you know very eager uh you know trying to figure out what my dissertation was you know,
1: yeah and telling you very politely pace yourself yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah yeah so and he's still a very good friend yeah.
1: well Tita. Thank you very much for this conversation, and I—you must let me know when these things come out. They sound really sound like really something I need to. Oh, read. thank you,
0: Patricia. It's just—it's been such a pleasure to speak with you, and I really appreciate your generosity, your intellectual generosity, and the generosity of this podcast. Uh, thank you for to you know you do this for all of us, and uh, for me in particular today, but for all of us. Thank you very much.
1: Oh, you're very much welcome.